In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I have a feeling you're really hoping I'm going to take on Bathsheba Gate. <laughs> and I am, just not today. We'll be talking about that situation next week, so stay tuned. But today what I'm focused on is what happened to Mark? We're in the second year of our three-year lectionary cycle, and so we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark. We've been cruising through his account of Jesus' teaching and healing, the issues Jesus has with the folks in his hometown and his family. But today, all that's changed. We've moved from Mark's fast-paced, direct account to John's meandering, implicit one. Mark's Jesus is very human. John gives us a superhuman Jesus. It's a pretty jarring change in style. And it's not like we're just throwing John a bone this week. Mm -mm. We're going to be listening to him for the next five weeks before returning to Mark for the rest of the season. And more than this, those five weeks will cover just one chapter. Why in the world would those who set the lectionary do such a thing? Because the story and teaching in this sixth chapter of John is so important. Today's passage is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that all four Gospels record. And two of them tell it twice. Which indicates it was an important story to the early Christian community that for them it clearly got to the heart of something that was important about Jesus. And John's account takes the story further and deeper, using the whole chapter to unpack what this miracle shows us about who Jesus is. In John's account, the crowds have followed Jesus across the water and to the mountain because they've seen the signs of healing that Jesus has been performing. They are intrigued. Jesus looks out on this gathering and asks his disciples, hey, what are we going to feed all these folks? The disciples, as usual, are not much help. Andrew does say, well, there's a boy here with five loaves and two fishes, but what are they among so many people? But all of this has just been a test because Jesus knows what he's going to do. The people are told to have a seat. Jesus gives thanks over the loaves and fishes and gives them to the people to have as much as they want. Just as an aside, have you ever wondered what this looked like? <laughs> I mean, did each loaf and fish regenerate after someone tore off a piece? Or did the bread and fish that were blessed provided grow into like giant-sized portions where everybody could kind of break off their own piece? Or did Jesus just keep pulling food out of a basket like so many rabbits out of a hat? <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I'm interested in the visual on this. <laughs> Regardless, when all those who wanted had had their fill, Jesus tells the disciples, gather up the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. And the leftover pieces filled 12 baskets. There are so many lessons for us from this story. The most obvious being that Jesus provides Jesus satisfies and sustains. He cares about the real situations and needs in our lives, and He shows up. 
You know, Jesus' miracles deal with real moments of suffering and need and pain that cannot be easily solved. These stories show us He is present and at work in the midst of our very real troubles and concerns and lack. He cares and He will provide. Second, no offering is insignificant. Jesus took a meager offering of loaves and fishes from one young boy, gave thanks to God, and gave them to the people. And it was sufficient to meet all their needs. Somewhere between what good is this offering among so many people and 12 baskets of leftovers is the Jesus factor. Especially today when the pain and needs of our community and the world can feel so overwhelming, we can be tempted to think, what little I could do would not make a dent in this issue. But we're reminded today that Jesus can use any effort, any offering, no matter how modest, for His purposes and to His glory. And Jesus not only provides what is needed, He supersizes it. For Jesus, enough does not seem to be enough. There is abundance. Later in John, Jesus will say, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Whether it is wine at a wedding or rooms in God's eternal house or a huge picnic on the lawn, Jesus reminds us that life in Him is a life of abundance, not scarcity. We don't have to angle or finagle or cheat or elbow. There is more than enough for all. And finally, leftovers are not to be left behind. Nothing is insignificant or abandoned. None are to be lost. Even the broken and incomplete are gathered up to be included, a sign of the wholeness that only Jesus can see. The feast that remains among the fragments. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come. And they came to take him and make him their king. The crowd rightly sees something special in Jesus, but their understanding is incomplete. Jesus is prophet and king, but he is so much more. Instead of seeing Jesus as a very embodiment of God, they see a, a political figure who might serve their desires. Jesus doesn't want to be made a king who will just keep producing more wonder bread because he knows that in the long run, the business of eating and drinking, the lesser attempts that we make to sate our appetites are quite literally a dead end. And so Jesus will go on for the rest of the chapter to try and bring the people to this deeper understanding of who he is and why he's come. Jesus will tell the crowd, don't come looking for food that perishes. Look for the food of eternal life. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And when the people say, well, give us this bread, Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Well, now he gets the attention of the religious authorities who push back, but Jesus doubles down, saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, my stars, now he's talking about his flesh. This riles the group even more, but Jesus just goes for broke. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. And at the end of the chapter, we're told that because of this difficult teaching, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. The feeding of the 5,000 is no mere miracle at all. It is a theophany. It is a window into the glory of God embodied by Jesus. The crowd wants more of what they've already received, believing that they will be satisfied. But Jesus wants them to go deeper, where they will find eternal sustenance. Like the crowd in John 6, we are tempted to think that perhaps our needs can be met by what others can give us. That in some way we can be fulfilled by the things that we long for. We look for a Jesus who will serve our desires and wishes, who will feed us in the way we want to be fed. But Jesus will have none of this. He will not be a king on our terms. His purpose is to provide sustenance that lasts, that keeps us truly alive, that won't feed us one moment and leave us hungry the next. In the Eucharist, we come to Christ on His terms, not ours. As we approach the rail, our illusions of control and power and self-sufficiency and image management fall away, and we are reminded that our life, our hope, our sustenance is in Him. Christ feeds us. He invites us to trust in His provision and His presence. And He strengthens us for all that we face when we walk out these doors. Come and be satisfied by the true bread of life. Amen.